Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, great to be with you. Um, I, I'm not normally up here, so my name's Alex, if we haven't met before. Um, I've, uh, I enjoy coming to church here. I became a Christian through my time uh, at high school. I went to an Anglican high school and had the great privilege of um, uh, hearing about Jesus there. And so it's my great privilege now to work at an Anglican high school uh, and junior school too, actually telling people about Jesus as well, up at St. Catherine's up the road. Um, so if you want to talk anything about education, please come and talk to me afterwards. And come on that uh, Tuesday night if you're going to come too. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever wondered this before. I wonder this sometimes. But if you notice, when you pass by someone on the street, you really have no idea who they are, do you? No idea where they're from, uh, what they're good at, what they've done, uh, the kind of person that they are. You, you could walk by someone truly great and have absolutely no idea. Uh, when I was at school... Um, people would identify one person who was the greatest athlete in the world at the time. And that person uh, was this guy, uh, Michael Jordan, a basketballer. And so amazing was he at basketball that everyone's expectations were so high, but no matter how high they were, he always met them and even managed to exceed them year after year after year. He was quite amazing. Now, apparently, um, uh, there was a story, rumour has it, that one day he was travelling in a lift... And uh, he was in a sort of crowded lift and, and uh, it was a little bit awkward. And uh, someone, look, that's not actually, this is a random lift, okay, not actually him lift. But uh, there's this woman that looked at him and didn't recognise him and, and said, gee, you're tall. You should play basketball. <laughs> not realising he's the greatest basketball that has ever walked on the face of the earth. It's good to know when you are in the presence of greatness. And when Paul writes to the Colossians, he tells them of something far more impressive than being the world's greatest thrower of balls into baskets. Now, it'd be really great to have that passage that was just read for us, Colossians chapter 3, open in front of you. Um, as Paul, what we've seen so far is that, um, uh, as Andrew mentioned, we're halfway, we're halfway, through, um, we're halfway through a series uh, on Colossians. The first half of, chapters, uh, of Colossians, chapters 1 and 2, was titled Greater. And uh, Paul has been telling the Colossians of something greater. It's all been about Jesus and how he's much greater than you could possibly imagine. In chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is every bit God as you can get. Every possible good thing you could describe of God, you could describe of Jesus because Jesus is God. He made the world. He sustains the world every day. He rescued the world. And this Jesus, this God... He shed his blood to cancel the record of sin that held us trapped in darkness. This Jesus is amazing. He is greater. Jesus is greater. And as we go to the second half of um, uh, the book of Colossians, our series is entitled Deeper. Having seen how much greater Jesus is, uh, Paul wants us to see how we can go deeper in our relationships, deeper in our relationships with God and also with each other as well. And he does this by telling us What's really going on when you're united to Christ? So have a look then uh, again with me at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. If you're a Christian person, that means you're united to Christ. 
If you're united to Christ and in a very real way you've been on his journey with him and share the benefits of being attached to him. You're trying to head on the road to Perth uh, with nothing but the shoes on your feet and the shirt on your back and, and no other supplies. You're not going to get there. You won't make it. It is impossible. But if you find yourself uh, with someone who maybe is driving a bus, heading the right way, stocked up with all, all the supplies, that will get you there. That will get you there. Jesus is driving the bus and we're along for the ride. Have a look at verse 1. You've been raised with Christ. <clears throat> when you put your trust in him, you become united to his resurrection. The fact that Jesus is alive, risen from the grave, is the thing that can give us reason to believe we can be there with him. So keep your eyes up, says Paul. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God, don't you know? That's a better place to be than any packed Olympic stadium, any three-chef-hatted restaurant, rocking concert arena, or the best five-star resort you could name. Jesus is in the very throne room of God, the palace of greatness. And if we're there with him, then we're there with him. His resurrection is powerful. It's the fulfillment of that prophecy we had read for us before through the prophet Ezekiel that God promised that one day he would make lifeless bones come together in great life and triumph and glory through the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the answer to that prophecy and that's open to us today. Have a look again in verse 3. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Just like Christ... Our earthly life, our life living for ourselves without God is over. It's dead. Nailed to the very cross that Jesus hung on. But now we're alive with Christ, living with him. That is our identity. Now, I'm not sure what Michael Jordan's like when it comes to cooking pasta. I have no idea. But when it comes to his identity, the thing that defines him and gives his life meaning, cooking pasta isn't it, right? His identity, everything that sums up who he is a person is that he is a basketballer. That's who he is. It trumps everything else about him. When you're united to Christ, that is the thing that defines your identity more than any other quality or skill. I may be good at sport. I may be completely uncoordinated. I might be a successful business leader. I may just struggle to make it through the day. But if I'm in Christ, those things are mere trivia by comparison. I'm united to Christ. I'm united to Christ. I've joined Jesus in his death for our sins and resurrection to life. I'm looking forward to spending eternity with him in heaven. In a thousand years from now, nobody's going to care how good you used to be at throwing balls into baskets. Not a bad thing to be good at throwing balls into baskets. It's fine. It's a good thing. You know, be successful in, in, in worldly things. But it's got nothing on being there with Jesus for eternity. And if we're united to Christ, we will look forward to that day when we will be with Jesus for eternity. Have a look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why lose sleep over trivial things when you know you've got tickets to God, God's very throne room. Keep your eyes up, says Paul, your eyes on things above. Our identity is in Christ, that's who we are. 
thinking of what is important should, uh, should, should keep our eyes fixed up on what is eternal and what is lasting. I've never had a job where I've gotten a Christmas bonus. They sound really good, right? Um, I'd love to get one, but I've never, never got one. But I'm guessing if you knew you had a five-figure five bonus check on its way to the bank, you're probably not going to lose sleep over the 20-cent coin you just dropped behind the couch. If you're in Christ, you've got heaven waiting. How good is that? There's no point getting caught up and worrying about so many earthly things that are temporary and will pass away. No point worrying about whether people are impressed by my job or not. No point if I feel like I'm as attractive as the person on the magazine cover or the people getting all the attention down at the beach. No point worrying about losing sleep over, over the house I wish I had or how many likes my last post got. If you're in Christ, you've got heaven waiting. And it's because you're in Christ that you can look forward to that, because you're on the bus with him. Now, having explained to the Colossians that their identity is now in Christ, he spells out what, how that should shape their lives in practice. We're going to see that first in verses 5 to 10, uh, how he explains to, the, uh, to those who, who are united with Jesus uh, that to, they need to put to death what doesn't belong to Christ. They're to put to death what doesn't belong to Christ. Have a look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul acknowledges that, there, that no life has been free from these things. All of us have walked with them, walked in these things in some way or another. Paul's got to remind us of this since even those who've been forgiven by Jesus, like the Colossians and like us, are all too often tempted to go back to this way of living. This side of heaven, we will all struggle with sin. And we need to be active in seeking to avoid temptations to sin. So now, verse 8, we see, we must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Let's cast your eyes over those things that Paul lists there in verse 5, then again down at, uh, at verse 8. He kind of lists 10 different things there. And I, I don't think these are like the hard and fast 10 bad things that you must never do and everything else is okay. So I think this is an example of what's known as a vice list, a list of bad things. And if you look through Paul's writings, you can actually find similar lists quite, quite a lot in other places. And, and they're not all exactly the same. There's a lot of similarity and overlap. But I think the small variations show that it's kind of not exhaustive. But what is he trying to do? He's trying to kind of put some flesh on what it looks like to, to, to wrestle with sin in our lives. It's practical outworking examples of how we might do that. Now, in one sense, we struggle with all of them to some degree. But as you look over that, that, that list, maybe there's some that, that, that you might particularly need to take notice of. What are the things that you feel are particular temptations for you? Where is the struggle against sin in your life? Are you struggling with covetousness? That is, you find yourself at times really jealous of what other people around you have. Not just simply that you wish you had it, but that those feelings of jealousy are making you discontent, bitter, causing resentment or, or feeling bad towards people around you, work colleagues, friends, neighbours, even brothers and sisters in Christ at church. If that's you, fight those feelings. Pray for God's help that you might find contentment with the things he's given you. And remember the unbelievable riches of what we have in Christ. We've been raised with Christ. 
and can look forward to eternity in glory with him. Having that is better than winning lotto. If you're in Christ, it's like you've won lotto every day. But uh, we're quick to forget the riches that we have in Christ, which is why it's so important that we keep reminding each other of how amazing it is that we can be united to him. Are you struggling against lust or sexual immorality? That is, doing things that you know are outside God's good design for sex. Look, we live in an overly sexualized world and it's very, very hard to escape sexual, sexual temptation. If that's a struggle for you, can I ask you, please, pray for God's help. Talk to a trusted friend that can help you and keep you accountable. Don't put yourself in harm's way. If you know there's a situation that might cause you to be tempted, don't go there. Maybe being with a person in a particularly risky context. Or maybe making sure you're away from easy access to pornography if you know that's a struggle for you. Paul's language here with sin is very clear. He says, put it to death. Take drastic action to help. That's why we need each other to to pray for each other and to support each other as we do this together. You're struggling against slander, talking badly about people around you. Perhaps to make yourself feel better or just to justify your annoyance. Are you struggling against obscene talk, crass joking and swearing? Paul says it's out of place for the person who's in Christ. I mean, could you imagine Jesus using foul language or telling dirty jokes? If you can't imagine him doing it, then it's probably best to keep watch over what you're saying now. And have a look again in verse 9, what kind of speech should characterise those in Christ? See what it says? He says, do not lie to one another. I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but I kind of feel like society is valuing truth less than it used to. I feel like when I was younger, people thought it was a good thing to tell the truth all the time, but I see around us, people, I feel like, just tell the truth when they know they can't get away with it. And if you can get away with it, that's kind of okay. I actually see it where I teach at school, with the students and even with the parents uh, sometimes. But you know what? Um, Paul says there's no place for dishonesty among Christians. So don't just tell the truth when it's convenient but tell the truth always. Value the truth because God values truth. And also, did you notice the reason Paul gave for telling the truth in verse 9? He says, have a look there, he says, you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Putting off and putting on, it's, it's the language of clothing. Putting off the old self is like taking off the shirt that's uh, been uh, stained by lots of mud uh, needs to be uh, washed clean, the shirt that's been stained by sin. But Jesus washed us clean and given us a new outfit to wear, new and clean, and this marks out who we are. Now, one of my great loves, uh, much to my chagrin sometimes, is rugby league. I really love uh, watching football. Um, it's been a character-building experience for me, particularly with my team over the years. But one of the things you notice when uh, a new player um, uh, joins a team or um, uh, not just for rugby league, but any sport really, what's the first thing that, pe- that people do when they join a new team? They take a photo of them wearing the new jersey, wearing the club's colours, because that's an important thing, isn't it? When you put on that jersey, it's not just something to wear, it marks out who you are. It marks out who you represent, who you're part of, who your identity is. And so it is when we put on the jersey that marks us as being on Jesus' team taking off the old sinful self and putting on the new self, 
Have a look at how Paul describes it in verse 10. The new self that you're putting on is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The jersey that we wear is not a garment, but is actually being like Christ. That's the clothes that we wear when we're on Jesus' team. So in verses 11 to 14, Paul tells us what it looks like to put on these Christ clothes. First thing you notice that he says is that um, if you're in Christ, you're all on the same team, you're all equal. See in verse 11, it doesn't matter if you're a learned and wise Greek or a religious Jew, it doesn't matter if you're cultured or barbarian, enslaved to a brutish master or enslaved to no one. You are all one in Christ, united. But notice though, uh, even though uh, we are united and no one's better than each other, we're all on the same team, there is diversity, isn't there? This is a group of people that spans the socio-economic divide, the cultural divide, the ethnic divide. But in Christ, we're all the same. And we should all put on the same clothes, wear the same jersey. Let's see what it looks like in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Earlier on we had a vice list, now we have a similar virtue list, a list of good qualities that Christians should strive for to be like Christ. Having taken off the old clothes, what do the new ones look like? Not greed, but compassion. Not malice, but kindness. Not arrogant self-service, but humility. And verse 13 particularly shows us what it looks like to live in community. We need to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another one, forgiving each other. Notice, Paul understands what community life is like. It will be hard sometimes. There will be disagreements. There will be something that someone around you does that annoys you, that frustrates you, that you'll find rude. There's no need to bear with anyone when things are fine, right? You need to bear with people when things are hard. And don't be surprised that when that happens, even in the best of communities, even in the best Christian communities. Make no mistake, we need to bear with each other, forgive each other, and forgiveness can be very, very hard. John Dixon, in his book, A Sneaking Suspicion, tells a story of a married man who uh, travels often for work. And one time, when he's away in a state, he does something really terrible and he has an affair. He comes home and his wife knows nothing about it. Some weeks pass by and he wonders if she's ever going to find out. He feels terrible and realises that, that he owes it to her to tell her and confess what he's done. He's expecting the worst. She has every right to be furious at him. And he wouldn't hold it against her if she wanted to end the marriage there and then after what he'd done. But her response to him is quite remarkable. She says, I forgive you. I forgive you. The man can't believe it. He feels incredible. Such a heavy burden lifted off his shoulders. She keeps loving him despite the horrible thing that he's done to her. A few weeks pass by and he can't believe how amazing it was what she's done. And so he decides to do something to show how much he cares and appreciates what she's done. So in the middle of the day, he comes home from work to try and surprise her, to give her some presents and, and show how much he appreciates what she's done. But as he, as he walks home, uh, he hears something. He can hear her and she's crying. And as he quietly approaches her, he sees her kneeling beside her bed in tears, 
praying to God, saying, God, please help me. It is just so hard to forgive. It's very, very easy to talk about forgiveness, but it is just so very, very hard to hurt someone who has, to forgive someone who has hurt you deeply. And I actually wonder, I think it's quite possible to go through the whole of life never having forgiven someone who's hurt you, who's really hurt you. But Paul says we should forgive one another. How can we ever do that? Have a look at the end of verse 13. It says, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. What Paul calls on us to do is simply to be like Jesus. If you're in Christ, if you put on the Christ clothes, then by definition, you know what it means to be forgiven. You know what it means to be forgiven. That's what it means to be a Christian, doesn't it? I mean, to be a Christian means to say, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I'm not perfect, and that I've turned my back on God. But thanks be to Jesus, who, who's died on the cross for my sins, so that I can be forgiven, and you can be forgiven too. There is no Christian who has not received God's forgiveness. If you know what it is to be forgiven, to have that huge burden lifted from your shoulders, then you should be in a position to forgive others too, to share what you have, even though that can be incredibly, incredibly hard. So can I encourage you to take Paul's advice to look to forgive, hard though it may be. That's the mark of lives touched by the forgiveness of Christ. None of us are perfect and we need help in this, but look to Jesus who is the source of our forgiveness for others. Now, perhaps you're here today and and you haven't experienced that relief that's come from finding forgiveness in Christ. Perhaps you're not sure if you have. That's you. Can I keep encouraging you to keep exploring further what that means? Maybe the Investigating Christianity course that Andrew mentioned before next week might be helpful for you. Maybe it might be useful to talk to a, a trusted Christian friend, someone here at church, community group leader. Be very happy to talk to you if you like. Because if this Jesus thing is true, then you wouldn't want to miss out. Forgiveness is great to receive and it's also a good thing to give. Now I mentioned uh, uh, that this virtue list is not an exhaustive list, but it can be summarised actually in one word. Paul does that in verse 14. See that? He says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jesus himself summarises God's law as this, love God and love your neighbour. Love is the thing that all other virtues fall under. But what is love? Is love simply a feeling? Well, that's not the way the Bible used the word love. Uh, even though uh, we can see around us uh, a common view that that's what love is. But um, uh, the Bible actually speaks about love in a different way. And I think it's, uh, it's best summarised by, um, in the words of a, a great contemporary philosopher who goes by the name of Olaf, um, uh, when he, he tells us that um, love is putting other people's needs before your own. That's the Bible's view of love. Love is putting other people's needs before your own. But that's very, very hard. It's costly. Loving people will cost you your time, your money, your comfort, your personal advancement. But it's good. It's what Jesus did and what Jesus does. Now, I started by pointing out that we really don't know anything about a person when we pass them by. They could be the best athlete in the world and we'd never know. 
But what Paul is telling us here, if, that, if you're in Christ, then you're about a gra- as great a person as you could possibly be. Not because you're better, not because you're more moral, more successful or a higher achiever than anyone else, not at all. But that you have Christ in you. And that is something available to any person who would reach out to him. You have Christ in you. You are together with Christ, awaiting his return, which is going to happen sooner than it did last week. So if that's you, remember how wonderful your identity in Christ is and make every effort to put on his clothes, allowing allowing yourself to be shaped to become more and more like him every day. Why don't we pray giving thanks and asking for his help in this? Would you bow your heads as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus, though in very nature God chose to become humble, even to death on the cross. Thank you that his blood cancelled the record of sin held against us, that we can find forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. Thank you that his resurrection to be at your right hand means that we can look forward to eternity with you, not because of our goodness, but because of your love and mercy and grace. Help us, please, to put to death our old nature, the things of this world that are sinful and against you. We pray for us as a church community that we might encourage and support each other in this. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would make each one of us more and more like Jesus every day, that we might count the cost, be willing to give up every worldly thing that we have for the sake of your name and your glory. Father, we know we're weak and we struggle with this every day, so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about St Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.